HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by White Oak Pastures, a five-generation Georgia-based beef and poultry farm determined to conduct business in an honorable manner. For more information, visit whiteoakpastures.com. This is Sherry Bayer from All in the Industry. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Well, thank you so much uh, once again for tuning in to the Heritage Radio Network. We are coming to you, as always, live from the back of Roberta's Pizza here in Bushwick, Brooklyn. A lovely uh, January day. You're tuned in to the Farm Report. I'm your host, Erin Fairbanks, and we have a jam-packed show for you today. Um, in the first half of the show, I'm going to share... Um, an interview I did yesterday with Paul Shapiro, who's the VP of Farm Animal Protection uh, with the Humane Society of the United States. And in the second half of the show, we're joined by Sam Edwards of S. Wells Edwards and Sons, a uh, country ham and, and cured meat purveyor down in Virginia, also a longtime supporter of the network, um, t- covering a lot of topics. Um, been a lot in the news lately um, around animal welfare. Um, If you haven't already, hop on your computers um, right away and check out uh, an article by Michael Moss that hit the New York Times January 19th, this past Monday. It's called U.S. Research Lab Let's Livestock Suffer in Quest for Profit. Uh, I've been digesting this article all week and and we'll probably be thinking about it for the next couple of weeks to come. But um, it's an expose uh, led by Michael Moss, who you know you may be familiar with from his work um, looking at sugar, uh, salt, and fat, and, and, and the diet industry. Um, but this is a behind-the-scenes tour of a um, research facility in Nebraska run by the United States government. And um, it's, pretty, it's pretty damning. It's pretty disturbing. Um, Mr. Moss takes us through a number of stories from a variety of sources kind of detailing different cases of um, pretty alarming instances of animal abuse throughout the center's history. Um, one of the things I, I, I thought was kind of interesting, you know, in reading this article, which is, which is obviously pretty intense, pretty sensational, um, you know, in some places I think it definitely hits the marks in other places. I think it's a little overreaching. Um, one of those being that, you know, the, the Mr. Moss claims that the, the center, the U S meat animal research center has one overarching mission. And I'm quoting here, helping producers of beef, pork, and lamb turn a higher profit as diet shifts towards poultry, fish, and produce. Of course, that is not their real mission. Um, what it is, actually, um, if, if you pop onto their website, um, Mark is developing scientific information and new technology to solve high-priority problems for the U.S. beef, sheep, and swine industries. Objectives are to increase efficiency of production while maintaining a lean, high-quality product. Therefore, the research ultimately benefits the consumer as well as the production and agribusiness sectors of animal agriculture. 
The research is directed towards areas of national concern and to meeting USDA's action agency's research needs. They go on to outline some of the work they do. Um, but basically, the research emphasizes both short and long-term solutions to improving animal production and, and production quality. They focus the majority of their work on beef cattle and then around 30% on swine and 20% on sheep. They look at genetics, breeding, uh, nutrition, meat science, production systems, biological engineering, and animal health. And the program's been around for about 50 years. And you'll hear um, you know, Paul Shapiro in the first half of the show talking a lot about how essentially the U.S. government should not be paying taxpayer dollars to support the meat industry. And I guess that kind of makes me take pause because ultimately I agree with the center's outline here that these are areas of national concern, regardless of your politics. Meat supply is is a big deal, both, both naturally uh, locally, regionally, internationally, and I definitely, for one, am, you know, kind of interested in learning more about the role that the government plays as it relates to to research and technology. Um, it's a it's a it's a sticky topic. I think one of the things that I I thought was so great about the article is it really shines a light in an area. Uh, animal research that I've never really you know, spent too much time thinking about. I was surprised to learn that in the Watershed 1966 Animal Welfare Act that um, research and testing in for the purposes of agriculture was excluded from that act. So I think we're all used to hearing about PETA and other animal rights activist groups talking about testing you know, cosmetics or, or jewelry or shampoos using animals. And I think there's a strong and long history of folks um, moving away from using animal testing in those spaces. But when it comes to agriculture, you can't test, you can't do research, you can't do development using something other than the actual animals, which, which brings to mind, you know, what is, what's an appropriate amount of suffering? Where do we as a society feel comfortable with this spectrum? And you know, I think that's an evolving conversation, and and we did talk a bit with Paul in the in the top of the show about some um, animal welfare policies that uh, Starbucks, a coffee company, has recently enacted. So, so stay tuned for those, and, and stay tuned for more throughout the episode. I mean, we touch on a lot of different issues, kind of jumping around. I definitely will be coming back to this article over the course of the next couple of weeks, still kind of thinking and digesting. But would love to hear from you, uh, your thoughts, your reactions. Um, when you read the article, what jumps out at you? Some points I recognize from time I spent on a farm, as, and some uh, were really revolting and, and scary. Um, obviously, we're working on a spectrum here. Um, it's a sensational article. Um, I, I think it brings to the forefront some really important conversations, and I'm excited to continue having them and to share a couple with you. So without further, further ado, I'm going to jump into the article we, or I'm sorry, the uh, interview we recorded with Paul yesterday. So tune in for that. Liz, you can go ahead and load it up. So we're on the line with Paul Shapiro, who's the VP of Farm Animal Protection for the Humane Society of the United States. And we're going to be talking a little bit about a couple of things that have been in the news as it relates to uh, animal welfare, the welfare of farm animals um, across the U.S. We're going to touch on the new um, Starbucks animal welfare practices, an announcement that came out uh, towards the end of last year, and then also get um, Paul's take on the article by Michael Moss that hit the New York Times yesterday looking at research labs um, that are doing focused studies on farm animals. So, Paul, thank you so much for taking some time to join us. Oh, it's my honor to be on with you, Aaron. Thanks so much for having me. So before we tuck into the topics at hand, I want to give folks a little sense of why does the Humane Society of the U.S. have someone specifically looking at farm animal protection, and what does that mean? Sure. Well, we have quite a few people looking at the issue because we are concerned at the Humane Society of the U.S. about the treatment of all animals, including animals who are raised for food, because the chickens, turkeys, pigs, and other animals who are kept on farms are not that different from the dogs and the cats who we welcome into our homes and into our families. These animals are individuals. They have personalities. They have likes. They have dislikes. And most importantly, they want to avoid suffering. And yet, too often, 
in America's meat, egg, and dairy industries, suffering is the norm for these animals. So we are waging a nationwide effort, really a global effort, to try to give a voice to farm animals, to start implementing rules for the treatment of these animals so that the industries which are using them can't just subject them to whatever cruelties they so desire, but rather will have at least some semblance of rules uh, of the road when it comes to their relationship with these animals. And obviously animal welfare is, you know, something that's close to your heart. I know that you did start um, an organization called Compassion Over Killing, which, you know, worked to address um, some of these issues. And and I feel like um, the pushback I'm going to get from some of my friends in the egg sector is that isn't this guy, isn't this work kind of a thinly veiled um, pro-vegetarian agenda? And how, how do you respond? I'm sure that's come up before. Sure. Well, whether you are a diehard vegetarian or a lifelong carnivore, all of us should be able to agree that farm animals ought to be treated with a basic sense of decency. And the fact of the matter is that when standard agribusiness practices get put to a vote, whether it's in a state like Florida or Arizona or California, which is a swing state, a red state, and a blue state, voters overwhelmingly vote to ban inhumane factory farming practices. And nearly all of those voters are meat eaters. Some of them are vegetarian, but probably more than nine out of ten of them aren't, uh, are meat eaters. So the fact of the matter is that Everybody should be concerned about the way that farm animals are treated when they're being abused on factory farms. And if you really believe that uh, allowing animals enough space, let's say merely just to be able to turn around, which is what many of these laws require, is going to lead to... um, to the end of using animals for food, you have to explain why that is. Um, these laws, like California's Proposition 2, were voted on and voted in favor by two-thirds of California voters who wanted to ensure that these animals had less miserable lives. I don't think that they were necessarily voting to end the use of animals. Yeah, and I would agree with you there. I just think it's an important part to kind of flush it out a little bit at the beginning. So I want to talk um, about the Starbucks announcement. You know, obviously, when we're thinking of um, large-scale agriculture um, and large-scale businesses, you know, there's an opportunity when you make changes at the margin to move the needle forward. And it was interesting to see, um, you know, the the Starbucks release, which focused on a couple of things, you know, eliminating um, purchasing of products from producers who made use of, uh, let's see, for for pigs, gestation crates, um, for their egg supply chain, looking at eliminating the use of caging laying hens. Um, They talk a little bit as well about addressing concerns with regards to growth hormones and um, antibiotic use, and then talking, too, about tail docking and castration without anesthesia. So why is it a big deal when a company like Starbucks makes a proclamation like this, that they're going to be looking at addressing some of these welfare practices? Well, it's a huge deal, Aaron, because if you look at the way that farm animal improvements are uh, being implemented, yes, some of them are coming about through public policies, through laws that require farmers to treat their animals better. But most of these improvements are coming about because of corporate policies. Companies like Starbucks telling their supplier community, if you want to sell us eggs, if you want to sell us pork, you have to adhere to these standards. And that sends a shockwave through the animal agribusiness industry because it lets them know that business as usual is not going to remain acceptable. The status quo in animal agriculture in which animal abuse is the norm rather than the exception is now being questioned, and it's being questioned by many of the biggest buyers of animal products. So announcements like Starbucks are truly game-changing when it comes to the treatment of farm animals in our country because it puts the writing on the wall to the meat, egg, and dairy industries clearer than ever before that some standard agricultural practices simply have to change. The fact is that the way that agriculture was done in the 20th century is not the same way it's going to be done in the 21st century. It's time to move out of the mentality that animals are just 
nothing but mere commodities to be produced like units of production on an assembly line and start recognizing that these are individuals who have interests and they certainly have an interest in avoiding unnecessary suffering. What I think it's always one of those like belated glimpses of the obvious when I think about going into a Starbucks, it's not immediately apparent, I think, that that oh, there's a real animal welfare connection here. So if we're thinking about um, products that are going to be really um, consumed at, at a Starbucks, obviously milk and, and dairy products, um, thinking too with their prepared goods, sandwiches, egg sandwiches, meat sandwiches, that type of thing. Do you have a sense of scale? I mean, I know that Starbucks is a global corporation. If we're looking specifically at you know their buying power in the U.S., um, can we get a sense of like how big of a player are they or how they might relate to other like large players in their space? Like what's the volume that we're talking about here? Do you have any sense? Sure, Aaron. Starbucks is, of course, a huge milk buyer and a pretty significant egg buyer, too. Not only um, do a lot of customers put milk in their coffee, but nearly all of the pastries that they sell there have eggs and or milk in them. They also have a breakfast box that has hard-boiled eggs in it. And so when you look at the number of Starbucks there are, you, which is vast, you start recognizing that they're a pretty big buyer of eggs and dairy products. Now, other retailers have also adopted somewhat similar policies. So, for example, companies like McDonald's are getting rid of gestation crates for all of their pork suppliers. Burger King is going 100% cage-free for all of the eggs that it uses. And so there are other big players in addition to Starbucks that are also now moving in the direction of having higher standards of care for the animals within their supply chain. One of the things that's definitely missing from this release is any sense of a, a timeline of implementation. So how do we how do we understand this as more than kind of like a, a PR statement, essentially, when there's no stated timeline? What's the checks and balances um, that we as consumers should be asking of Starbucks beyond saying, hey, we're going to do these things at some point? That's a great question, and most of the companies that are adopting these policies do have time frames for them. However, because Starbucks is such a broad and wide-reaching policy, the lack of a time frame for some of them is, is understandable, but the company should be working toward setting a timetable for the most important of these. So, for example, with the Burger King uh, egg policy, they say that by 2017, so within two years from now, they'll be 100% cage-free on all of their eggs. Companies like Unilever, which use enormous amounts of eggs for their Hellman's slash Best Foods mayonnaise, um, say that by 2020, they're going to be 100% cage-free with all their eggs. So Starbucks should make an announcement about that for sure. Um, but because there are some parts of the company's animal welfare policy which are getting at very tough and, and very um, and almost intractable issues, for example, changing the genetics of chickens who are raised for meat so that instead of growing extremely rapidly, which is a huge animal welfare problem, that they will grow more slowly in a more healthful manner, that is going to take a long time, and it's unclear how long it could take. But for some of these, like cage-free eggs, gestation crate-free pork, it should be easier for the company to set a timetable for implementing them. And that kind of brings me to, to my next point. I think one of the things that is interesting um, that your team um, at the Humane Society does is putting together these state-by-state um, -state ag councils, uh, which is kind of a collection of folks um, from across the ag sector who you work with to advise you on how you should be thinking about um, animal welfare practices specific to agriculture. I know you guys just launched a new one out in Wisconsin. So similarly for a group like Starbucks, who are the people they need to have at the table to be helping them make these decisions? I think in the past I've interviewed um, reps from from large food corporations when I've asked about similar statements where, oh, we're going to switch over our eggs. And I'm like, well, how did you come to the conclusion of a timeline? And they're like, well, the PR people said one thing and our president said another, but nowhere in that conversation was included the, the producers, the farmers, the people who are going to need to be transitioning um, to, to meet this supply chain. So when we're thinking about the kind of people who need to be at the table to make these policies 
kind of smart and comprehensive and realistic, um, who should be included? And, and do you have any sense of, of how uh, Starbucks has put together, I don't know, an advisory council to help them weed through some of these complex issues? Well, it certainly couldn't hurt to have advisors from the ag sector to help them implement the policies that they want to implement. For example, I think it's critical for them to be talking with cage-free egg producers and pork producers who aren't using gestation crates to find out how quickly either they could scale up to meet Starbucks demand or how quickly they believe that Starbucks current suppliers could change their practices in order to be compliant with the new policies. So you can't underestimate the importance of hearing from farmers on these issues because they're the ones who are are going to be changing something in order to meet the new Starbucks demand. The, you know, when you have supply and demand, the, the demand is being presented and now the supply side has got to come into compliance. And it's important for those two sides to be communicating with each other about what's realistic. And I have one final question before we shift gears a little bit. Obviously, as a consumer, um, this is going to impact, you know, Starbucks purchasers um, in a couple of ways. I'm assuming one that, um, you know, they're going to know that the the supply chain for their practices has a little bit more transparency and possibly is a little bit more in line with their values as it relates as they may relate to animal welfare. But I want to talk a a bit about cost. How do we think about cost and the role that that is sure to play when a company makes a transition like this? Well, it's an important matter, of course, um, because most of the reasons why we have intensive confinement systems have to do with cost. But there's hidden costs associated with these extreme forms of animal confinement in the meat industry and the egg industry. So, for example, if you look in the egg industry, right now, 9 out of 10 egg cartons sold in our country come from birds who are locked in cages that are so cramped they can't even spread their wings. Each bird has less space than a sheet of paper on which to live for more than a year before she's slaughtered. And that is the method that's used because you cut financial corners. By overcrowding the birds, you can cheapen the cost of eggs. But there are hidden costs associated with that. Obviously, there's the increased cost of animal cruelty that's born on the backs of the birds themselves. Then there's also the hidden cost of increased food safety risks because the evidence is clear that cage-free hen houses tend to have less salmonella contamination than cage confinement hen houses do. So we have to ask ourselves about the full cost of these inhumane practices when you start counting the cost to the animals, the cost to public health and personal health, and then you start seeing that it's not such a great deal to have these ultra-cheap animal products because we're paying for it in other ways that just may not be paid for at the cash register. Well, shifting gears a little bit while I have you on the line, I wanted to just touch briefly uh, on an article that came out in the New York Times on Monday the 19th by Michael Moss. The article was entitled, U.S. Research Lab Lets Livestock Suffer in Quest for Profit. And I'm sure there's been reactions amongst your team to, to this expose, and I'm wondering if you could share some of those with our listeners. Sure, Aaron. So the article really is a must-read, wonderful investigative report by Michael Moss at the New York Times, really shining light on a very dark and hidden world of meat industry animal experimentation. And the tortures that were described in the article were truly sickening. I mean, depravity is the word that kept coming to my mind as I was reading about them. And I'll spare your listeners the the horrible details, which they can read in the New York Times. It was an A1 story if you want to read them. But suffice it to say that um, truly sickening, torturous experiments on a regular basis being perpetrated against large numbers of animals at this meat research center in Nebraska. What's really fascinating about about this and troubling is that most industries have to do their own research and development. You see these companies generally have R&D labs of their own. The meat industry, on the other hand, is so reliant on federal handouts that it takes huge numbers of taxpayer dollars to fund this meat industry research center that's being completely paid for by us, the taxpayers. 
And of course, the animal torture is very disturbing. But the fact that the meat industry isn't even can't even be bothered to pay for its own R and D, but rather has to rely on the federal government to do R and D for it. Why should that industry get that type of a handout? You know, this is an industry that loves to proclaim libertarianism when it comes to their values of a free market. They don't want any regulations or rules on how they can treat animals or what they can do to the environment. But when it comes to them wanting socialism in the form of tremendous government handouts, they always go to Washington with their palms cupped, their hands outstretched, begging for money, whether it's massive subsidies to artificially cheapen the price of uh, grains like corn and soy, or in this case, whether it's subsidies in the form of R&D in a federally funded research facility for the meat industry. You just have to ask yourself, Does this industry really deserve those type of taxpayer handouts? And I think the answer is no. Well, I definitely echo your your sentiments with the fact that this is a a must-read article for for folks who care um, and are are thinking deeply about the animal welfare um, spectrum here in the U.S. One of the things that jumped out at me that I wasn't on my radar prior to the article was um, the mention of the Animal Welfare Act that was passed in 1966 and the fact that farm animals, um, research on farm animals was omitted from the act. I'm wondering if you could talk a, a little bit about about that act. And I'm, it wasn't clear to me from the article if, if things had changed or if when we're looking at um, welfare regulations, farm animals are still currently completely outside the purview uh, of the regulatory environment. Is that the case? Yeah, so the Animal Welfare Act of 1966 has been amended many times since then, but one thing that hasn't changed is that agricultural research has still not been included under the modest protections that the that the law offers. In other words, if you are experimenting on a, let's just say you're experimenting on a pig to try to cure cancer in humans, you, that pig is protected under the Animal Welfare Act. If you're experimenting on a pig to try to help the pork industry improve efficiency or some other form of pork industry handouts, that pig is not protected under the Animal Welfare Act. So, uh, of course, from the pig's perspective, she's being experimented on one way or the other, but it just shows the influence of the agribusiness lobby that, in just like in most cases, it has gotten itself virtually completely exempted from basic rules of the road when it comes to how animals ought to be treated. Wow, that is that. I mean, that is definitely coming. Um, I will say it's coming as a surprise to me. Well, what do you think? I mean, how do we? How should we approach? Um, you know, R and D in the agriculture sector. I mean, what would humane testing look like? And are there is there an acceptable level of suffering that that we can kind of um, agree on culturally? Is there some other space that we should be looking to when we're thinking about advocating for change in this area? Well, that's an important cultural conversation to have. How much animal suffering are we as a society willing to cause? Uh, there's a great shift within the animal experimentation industry toward moving toward non-animal models altogether. So, for example, using uh, tissue cell cultures in vitro technologies that can uh, replace animals in the lab with non-animal methods. And that's something that really everybody should support because it will provide us not only with uh, cheaper experimentation and more humane experimentation, Experimentation, but really more efficient and, and safer and more reliable experimentation, too. At the same time, at the barest of minimums, the meat industry should have to pay for its own R&D. It shouldn't be relying on the federal government to conduct research and development for it. It should do just like most other industries and pay for its own. And if they are using animals, they should be minimizing the suffering of those animals. When you read the New York Times article, you recognize that there's no consideration being given to these animals. They're being tormented in ways that are almost unspeakable. I mean, I've devoted uh, two decades of my life to advocating for animals. And reading this article, even I was in shock by the total disregard for the suffering of animals who are being used in these experiments. And so uh, at the barest of minimums, the industry ought to be paying for its own R&D and ought to be taking the welfare of animals who it's using um, a lot more seriously than it is. Well, Paul, it's been really great getting um, your insights and, and the insights of the Humane Society on these issues. I really appreciate you taking some time to chat with us today. 
Aaron, it's my pleasure to be on with you. Thank you so much. I'm really grateful, and I hope you have a great day. For folks who want to learn a little bit more about Paul and the work of the Humane Society of the United States, you can check them out at humanesociety.org. Hang tight. We are going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll be on the line with Sam Edwards of S. Wallace Edwards & Son to continue our conversation on current news items in the ag world. Hang tight. We'll be right back. listening to Knife Show, Rhythm. White Oak Pastures is the only farm in the United States that has its own USDA-inspected red meat abattoir or slaughterhouse and its own USDA-inspected poultry abattoir or slaughterhouse. We partner with Whole Foods to deliver our high-quality meat and poultry from Miami, Florida, all the way to Princeton, New Jersey. One family, one farm, five generations, 145 years. A full circle return to sustainable land stewardship and humane animal stockmanship. For more information, please visit our website, whiteoakpastures.com. Hi, this is Chad Pagano, former Army sniper, host of the Wild Game Domain, and you're listening to the Heritage Radio Network.org. All right, so we are now joined on the line by Sam Edwards of S. Wallace Edwards & Sons. Um, Sam produces American country hams and, and honey-smoked hams and, and bacon and a whole line of amazing pork products down in Virginia. It's safe to say that he is a man who knows his pork and the pork industry. So we're going to be chatting with him um, today about food safety as it relates to pork um, and also getting a little bit of his feedback um, as well on the Michael Moss article that we were talking about in the top of the show. Sam, thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Erin. How are you? I am great. It's lovely to have you here. So I want to jump right in here. You know, the Michael Moss article that came out on Monday the 19th took a, a deep look at animal welfare in regards to experiments for the meat industry. And as someone who, who follows that industry and participates in it, I'm curious what your reactions were. Well, again, I, based on just what I saw in the article, um, I would be surprised if it's not more, not anything more than anecdotal, and I'm sure that now that this is coming out, whatever uh, shortcomings they had and how they handled the, their the animals, the USDA is going to pay attention to getting it corrected, and probably some folks out there are going to lose their jobs over it because it's certainly no way to handle uh, handle the humane treatment uh, of animals. I know the USDA has very strict guidelines for those of us who are in the business. Um, they need to get their own house in order, no doubt. Yeah, for sure, and I definitely more more to come on that. So what I wanted to talk a little bit about today was, you know, we saw a press release from uh, the folks over at Food and Water Watch talking about imported pork recall highlights failures of food import inspections. And the, the top half of the release was filled with acronyms, uh, TPP, TTIP, PHIS, FSIS, um, basically talking about how we inspect and ensure the safety of food items that we're importing from from other countries, looking specifically at the pork industry. Um, they outlined on here a couple of recalls that have happened, which uh, I think they were particularly concerned about because the analysis um, that the food was potentially unsafe happened after the food had already been kind of released into the food supply. So I wanted to connect with you as someone who is obviously immersed in the pork industry to get a little sense of how do we as consumers understand safety as it relates to the pork supply chain? What do we need to be looking for? And, and how are you being impacted as, as a producer? Um, do you deal with imported pork? Do you deal just with stuff from the United States? And, and what does that environment kind of look like from someone who's a practitioner? Well, everything that we use is um, is from the U.S. 
Um, and, you know, the, the imported product is a totally different uh, process that they have to go through. They're inspected, theoretically, when they leave the country of origin, and they're inspected at the border when they come in, either by ship or by truck um, or air. The, the problem is, and I hate to say it, but, I mean, they, they're probably shorthanded at the USDA. These guys have to check the, all the stock that's coming in. Um, it's an incredible amount of tonnage, number one, uh, to inspect. It is unfortunate, though, that they release product that is getting, obviously getting into the marketplace that's not safe to eat. Um, so how do you overcome that? Well, it, in the USDA world that I live in, there is zero tolerance. I mean, everything is checked. So if everything's going to be checked in the U.S., why isn't it the same rules why don't the same rules apply for the imported product? I can't answer that. I don't know why. I do know trying to export to Europe and Asia is practically impossible unless you have something they really, really want, like chicken's feet. <laughs> I mean, you know, in Asia, that's 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 a high-demand item uh, that, you know, they let that come in by the carload lots, 40,000-pound increments, you know, huge, huge tonnage. But, but if I were to try to send a drag-cured ham in uh, to compete in Asia or Europe against the prosciutto or the serrano or whatever the uh, the uh, English folks make, or in, the, in China it's the chinois, forget it. It isn't going to happen because their agriculture lobby is so strong, they're going to prevent that from happening. I don't mind their product coming into the U.S. I just want their product to have to you know jump through the same hoops that we do. And do you feel, and we, you know, we have chatted offline about this in the past. I mean, can you give us a sense of how the pork industry compares to the poultry industry or the beef industry um, as far as regulation is concerned? I know as like a f- end, end user, as an end consumer, folks have different levels of, um, of, of a sense of safety around different meat products. Like we're comfortable culturally in the U.S. with eating beef very rare, but we're not comfortable eating like, you know, pork or, or chicken very rare. Um, is that because there's a real difference in, in the safety? Is that a historical component? Like how do we understand that? Well, now they understand, they meaning the USDA and food safety officials, Understand in the case of beef, if you're buying a steak, that's a whole primal cut. The chances of getting E. coli from it are minimal because the exposure is minimal. Whereas a hamburger is it's ground and it's potentially you could reintroduce bad things into the ground beef, so therefore you should cook it at a higher temperature. That's the reason why you see on the bottom of all the menus, you know, we don't cook our hamburgers rare. Um, chicken, the reason why it's always been an issue is salmonella. Uh, what I don't understand is they have this criteria in the pork and the beef industry is zero tolerance. Okay, well, that's fine. How come there isn't a zero tolerance for salmonella in chicken? Uh, you know, they're all pathogens that we can get sick from. Uh, I just feel like the red meat industry gets a short riff there. As far as why do people think you need to cook pork to this incredibly high temperature, this goes back to the 1940s and 30s and 50s when trichinosis was still an issue in this country. But there hasn't been a reported case of trichinosis from eating pork since the 1950s, yet that rule is still being applied or or still in the mindset of people when they think about cooking pork that they got to cook the heck out of it for it to be safe to eat, when, in fact, um, again, this trichinosis issue is not even an issue any longer. Therefore, you don't need to cook it. To 170 degrees, you can get it. You know, really, at 150 is fine. And obviously, for your production chain, in particular with the dry cured hams, the, the meat's not ever really being cooked. So, how is that? How do you, you know, ensure safety in in that space? And and how have you had to prove that 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 supply well, chain again, is safe? Well, it's interesting because we had a two hour meeting this morning with uh, outside consultants to review our. Our uh, HACCP plan is specifically the process of a dry-cured meat that's ready to eat. And it boils down to the USDA agrees and understands, and there's science to back up this, this concept, to what I'm going to tell you about in a minute. Beyond that, 
there's 5,000 years of history of dry of doing dry cured meats correctly, not causing any foodborne illness issues. That being said, what we've learned is if you get the water activity below a certain level, uh, and you're using natural antimicrobials, which is salt and sodium nitrate, uh, sodium nitrate like you find in sea salt, for instance. In addition to that, your dryness, so you're reducing the water activity with pathogens cannot survive when the water activity is below a certain level. So if you meet all those criteria, even if you were to recontaminate it by a human touching or in, or in a deli somewhere uh, in a dirty slicer, that if the water activity is low enough and, and, and you have enough antimicrobials and natural antimicrobials, the product's going to be safe anyway because the, the pathogens will die almost, I don't want to say immediately, but they die pretty rapidly if you recontaminate it at the deli. Most healthy people can eat a good dose of LM or, or, or listeria uh, without having any kind of you know, side effects. It's the immune deficient old people and children that you have to be really protective over. So how is that landscape changing? I mean, obviously you are a multi-generational business. So under your watch, have things um, from a regulatory standpoint gotten easier or, or harder? And what impact has that had on your business? Um, it hasn't gotten easier. Um, but at the same time, I think the system we have uh, is backed up by science instead of a subjective inspector walking in and applying the regulations in a very capricious and arbitrary way because they had a bad morning. Now we have HACCP plans in place that if we're doing A, B, C, and D, which are easily measured and, and documented, then then we're good to go. And, every, and the part I like is because we have a valid and proven and tested asset plan, when we ship the product, everybody agrees that our product is safe to eat. So if we deliver it somewhere that they mishandle it, I can go back to my paperwork and prove that, hey, here's the documentation and the testing of that particular lot that we know that it left here in good shape. And it was delivered in good shape, for that matter, because we even have testing you know, in the delivery process, too. So that part of it has been um, great, I think. On the other hand, uh, another positive is it has been a job producer because now it takes uh, – it used to take some one person maybe a half a day to keep up with USDA issues. issues. Now I have two and a half people here dealing with USDA full-time. Wow. So um... – Kind of, uh, it's been a, yeah, it's been a job creator. <laughs> Unintended uh, uh, economic benefits, I guess. Um, well, so you, what's interesting, I think, about that um, being able to trace back that supply chain, you know, that is also what we're able to do. It sounds like with product that we're importing from outside the United States. Um, but if, if there's not kind of that stop point, that kind of like center of the hourglass where it's getting tested and checked before it's going back out, that seems like the space that, that things, there's a lot of opportunity for things to go awry and for kind of frontline consumers to be put at risk. But Yeah, and, and, and keep in mind, too, because I've had this happen or seen this happen, I should say. Even though this article and this recall issue is claiming unsafe, um, believe it or not, the government makes mistakes, too. So just because they're saying there's an issue uh, and, and it has got into the marketplace isn't 100% guarantee that they're accurate. But it is, I don't doubt that, you know, the intent here is that they're, they're trying to track down some product that they per perceive testing-wise didn't come back favorable. Uh, what I don't understand is, the systems that we already have in place in this country for U.S. made products, how come, how come the system for imports isn't as strong? Yeah, it no. just doesn't make, that part doesn't make sense, especially before it gets into the marketplace. Well, too, and talking, it was interesting listening to the State of the Union last night and hearing President Obama talking about, um, 
you know, our role looking forward with regards to exporting American made goods and kind of like easing the outflow of that. So it'd be, I'm, I'm curious, like how that, how that might like shake out for, uh, for a business like yours. Well, when I heard that, I, I said, yeah, right. This, he doesn't have a clue what, how difficult it is now. I, you know, I've always, and again, this is just solely my opinion and observation. I think in, in the past, our State Department, which, believe it or not, is a lot of what our negoti- economic negotiations, the State Department, in my opinion, is all part of it. Because I'm, my opinion is that they probably are negotiating an airbase or airspace or, or uh, a seaport for the U.S. naval ships to pull into their country. In exchange for that, we'll let you ship your potatoes and grain and, and hams into our country. I think for us, the negotiating process is not just trading product back and forth. It's, it, it also has a military spin to it, too. I, I, I am involved in some... Uh, I guess information that's slowed to me about uh, negotiations on, on world treaties that impact the meat industry in this country, and th- there was no question that whoever was doing the negotiate, negotiating was not really thinking about the American producer um, because they gave away the farm, and, 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 and made, it's going to really make it really difficult for anybody in the U.S. to export their products to that country. Um, and I've seen that over and over again. Yeah, not not an I, apples to apples exchange, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, they can't. We can't ship into England if you have wood in your plant. I mean, that's wooden pl- uh, pl- pallets, uh, wooden handled knives, uh, broom handles. Uh, which okay, fine. I can go ahead and get fiberglass broom handles, fiberglass handled knives, but wooden pallets. That's just a you know standard process. You know, you put your product on a wooden pallet and ship it. Um, and I'd even be willing to put them on plastic pallets just to get them into England, for instance. But you can't make my whole plant um, uh, ineffective to, for shipping uh, or exporting just because we keep wooden pallets. One of one of the regs for uh, Japan was we had to have uh, in-house showers and make the employees shower uh, before they start. Uh, at the lunch break, and when they came back after lunch, and when they finished up at the end of the day. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think um, what you're definitely illuminating for us here is kind of the complex nature of the meat industry um, from the the value-added standpoint, which is kind of where you guys sit. And I want to just kind of circle back as we wrap up here to the component where where we jumped off at the beginning of this conversation talking a little bit about um, animal welfare. And I'm wondering if you could share with us how, you know, for your business, when we think about animal welfare, um, particular to kind of hogs and, and the pork industry, obviously been a lot of conversation, you know, nationally and within the industry about what's right for that. And I wonder if you can share with us what you found for your business um, are spaces where where that kind of makes sense or doesn't make sense, or you've noticed the final product kind of shifting based on different animal welfare standards? Well, the marketplace drives what we sell. So when we started making uh, or developing connections with um, companies like Heritage Food USA to to buy um, fresh pork that was certified humane, when I say certified humane, third-party certified humane by HFACA, AWA, or another entity like that. Um, we didn't, in the beginning, we did it just because the chefs or the store we ultimately sold the product to demanded that. Now, it's still only maybe a tenth of what we do, but it's growing, and um, we certainly are selling five times the amount we were selling five years ago. So there is a demand for it, and our ability to track and actually check on. You know, it's one thing to have third-party certification, but, you know, we get on a a plane and a bus and go to the farms uh, to actually check on the farmers, and we track from the farm to the product all the way through the process to, to, to send it to the consumer, 
Um, does the flavor profile? Gosh, how do you how do you measure that other than your own taste buds? So we, we of course, eat our product all the time, and we, in my opinion, we discovered that a you know a happy pig, a stressless pig, uh, in our mind, seems to taste better. When it's fresh pork, it tastes better. So why wouldn't it taste better when it's a finished product? Um, so that's kind of what we've hung our hat on. The chefs and the specialty stores across the country seem to appreciate it. So, uh, you know, we're going to keep going down that path and hopefully convince more farmers to raise animals that way. Awesome. Well, Sam, thank you so much for taking some time to um, illuminate us into the, the world of uh, pork pork production, pork industry. I really appreciate it, and um, always great to have you on. Well, you're welcome. Talk to you soon. You too. Take care. Bye. All right. So as you can see uh, from the chats I had yesterday with Sam and Paul, when we are talking about meat, we're talking about a lot of different complicated and interwoven factors, and I can't help but spending a little time vacillating between feeling um, personally a little overwhelmed and confused, but also um, it seems like really the answer in what to do on a day-to-day basis is quite simple, um, and that's know where your food is coming from um, to the extent that that you can buying from producers you trust asking questions and and just you know chipping away at that kind of bank of of information um i am excited um and just to give a little um way in advance plug we will the heritage radio network will be working with slow food usa this upcoming june for their slow meat conference it's going to be out in Denver, Colorado, getting together a bunch of folks from different parts of the meat sector to talk a little bit about what good, clean, fair meat looks like in 2015 and beyond. So stay tuned for more details on that. Please um, give me a shout. I would love to hear from you, your thoughts on the show, uh, your thoughts on the article that Michael Moss put out January 19th. Again, that is U.S. Research Lab lets livestock suffer in quest for profit. If you like the show, um, consider subscribing via iTunes or Stitcher. Love both those platforms. Uh, visit the website here at heritageradionetwork.org. Please become a member. Click that Donate tab. We'll send you some cool swag, um, but you also get to rest satisfied knowing you're supporting great, fair, food-focused radio. Thanks so much for listening. Stay tuned in. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us with questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.